Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show, coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska, where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Thank you, Scott. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome aboard Must Read Alaska, coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. And we have a great show for you today. Before we get started, though, if you like this podcast, if you love freedom, and if you love the Constitution like we do, then give us a five-star review. And if you have the time, why not write a comment? We want to hear from you. And your feedback just makes us better. So if you can, do that. And also hit the donate button at mustreadalaska.com because we're reader-driven and listener-driven and we're a conservative project about Alaska for Alaskans. And if you're on Facebook, give us a like. What, by the way, we just reached 15,000 followers on Facebook. We're pretty happy about that. And I want to thank John for all his hard work and making that happen. It was a big milestone. I'm Suzanne Downing and you know my co-host, John Quick. He's on the other mic in the Kiski. He keeps us current on everything going on in Kenai. Scott Levesque is our producer in Anchorage. You can hear Scott on the Wednesday edition of the Must Read Alaska show, which he's hosting by himself. Great show on Wednesday, uh, last Wednesday, Scott. Really good job. We've got a lot going on. It's 12 degrees in Fairbanks. It's 36 degrees in Juneau. There's wind shear at the Anchorage Ted Stevens International Airport. And I was just watching the planes doing the laps and the, you know flapping their wings as they're trying to land. So I understand it's raining in Kenai, John. What's, what else is going on down there? Well, thanks so much, Suzanne. John Quick here, and it is raining in Kenai. I uh, spent the morning at the hardware store, tootling around, and uh, just made it home. And we had a great Christmas here on the Kenai. Businesses are open, restaurants are open, small businesses are open, and this is a prime example of a play, of a scenario where you don't have to live under tyranny. You can actually be an American on the Kenai Peninsula uh, and make money and have your doors open and the government does not want to shut you down. In fact, our mayor, Mayor Charlie Pierce, wants your business to be open. He wants it to be successful, and it's just a great place to live. Um, uh, I had, uh, you know, we get all these uh, inklings of our hospitals are full, our hospitals are full, what are we going to do? Well, I unfortunately had a family member get taken uh, in an ambulance over the holiday season, and she went to the uh, ER, and, and she's fine now, but the hospital was empty. Nobody's in the hospital. Literally nobody was in the ER. It was not overrun. So these things that we're hearing about, oh, the hospitals can't take it and this and that, it's just not true. And so on the Kenai, we are living the American dream. It's a little slower than normal, but everything is open and we love it here on the Kenai. Well, and, and on that note, I wanna ask everybody to check out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel where we posted a really great um, video interview of Ken Kastner, the mayor of Homer. And of course, Homer is a, a city inside the, the Kenai borough and a, a, a young a sophomore high school student from Los Angeles just called, it, called him up and interviewed him on, on um, YouTube. And it's a really, really great interview. But, but Ken Kastner says the same thing, which is, you know, the Kenai is doing pretty well. 
it's just uh, and it's in, and Homer's done well, and people are um, are trying to give cut each other a lot of slack in in the Kenai Peninsula. So good job there. So today we have a really special guest with us on the show. If he hasn't fallen asleep on us while we've been talking about the um, magnificent weather on the Kenai, Jay McDonald. He's a political strategist who's been working on the campaign of Representative Lance Pruitt, and he's here to explain to us what went down in District 27 in the race that should have all Alaskans concerned about our elections. Now, I've known Jay for several years, and he is an amazing researcher, and he's, uh, dare I say, a very intense individual. First, Jay, welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's really, really good of you to, to spend some time with us this afternoon. We want to talk to you. We want to hear from you, actually, about what happened in the district. First of all, District 27 race, part of it is in court. And, and they had their hearing last week in front of a judge. And I wanted you to just walk us through what happened with how they moved around these voting locations in the district just before election day. Can you kind of tell our listeners what exactly happened? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to begin with, there was a number of different issues that we wanted to we wanted to evaluate in a courtroom setting. You know, we wanted to put the evidence out there and have a serious conversation on the merits about a number of different things. And unfortunately, at the very beginning, the judge ruled on procedural grounds to basically dismiss all arguments. And we were only really allowed to discuss the polling place location issue in detail. So we initially, we wanted to talk about um, the data hacking issue that happened. We wanted to talk about the signature lawsuit and we wanted to talk about some illegal votes that were cast. And all of those arguments were more or less shut down. We were really only able, able to talk about the polling location. And that was a little bit limited as well. And, and you know, part of the reason why it was so disappointing was because there's a we didn't make all of this stuff up. This has happened before in Alaska. We were going off of a, pre, a precedent in uh, 1988. There was a case Finkelstein versus Stout, which was a very similar set of circumstances where a Democrat sued the state of Alaska and it was the courts determined that the the will of the voters was not clear and they ordered a new election. Well this sounds really important but let's talk about the part that she did take up and she did hear. Let's go over that one first and then I want to get to these other ones because they are they're the, they're kind of meat of the issue today which is the data hacking, the signatures, the illegal votes, all of this stuff that happened in district 27. It happened in other districts too, you know that, but you've got proof in district 27. But first of all, Two days before the election, the division elections just moved one of the voting locations. Tell us what happened with that. Yeah, well, so actually I'll, I'll start by talking about, um, you know, the, the race was, this is a race where there was over 9,000 ballots that were cast. And the difference we're talking, the margin of victory is 11 votes. It's a fraction of a fraction of a percent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, making the case um, for, for, for Lance Pruitt, we had Randy Ruderick mm -hmm. presenting evidence. And if you don't know Randy, you know, whether you like him or whether you don't like him, whether you're conservative or whether you're a leftist, there's nobody that could dispute the fact that Randy is one of the foremost experts in the state. So, you know, his testimony might be a little bit skewed um, from his perspective, but the, the man is accurate. He's drawn the maps. He's, he's drawn the actual precinct maps and there's nobody knows more about electoral 
details than Randy does. And, you know, after his testimony, the points that he was laying out, it's a fact that in this specific precinct that the state moved without notifying voters multiple times, the election day turnout was lower than it should have been. It was suppressed. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, the turnout was two to one in favor of Republicans on election day. Yeah, especially so, in that particular precinct. It was, it was District 27 precinct. What was the, the number on that precinct? Uh, 915. 915. And so that's the one that used to be at Wayland Baptist Church. And then uh, before the uh, primary, Wayland said, we really don't want you guys to have your election here this time because of COVID. So they moved it to Muldoon Town Center for the primary. And then all the way up until two days before the general election, it was at Muldoon Town Center. Everybody thought it was there. Yeah, so apparently um, apparently, the people at the tippy top in the Division of Elections knew that it was going to be moving. Uh, they weren't able to give us any kind of large communications where they made that decision. And we weren't able to really nail down exactly when or how that happened or what the decision-making process was because they didn't have those logs. They told us none of those conversations were recorded. But the bottom line is the people that were the people working in the polling place found out the Sunday before the election. That's like two, two days, days out. Yeah. Yeah. The, the people who owned the buildings did not even know what was happening inside of the buildings that they own. They like they didn't even notify the owners of the buildings. Yeah. So it's this it's is, incredible. Yeah. So so at first the judge just said, um, no, I'm not gonna, you know, we're not gonna consider this. She wasn't going to put a um, you know, some sort of an emergency order on it. And then when she heard the evidence, she reversed herself. How did that how did that happen? Yeah. So first off, I'd like to say when you're talking about um dismissing arguments on procedural grounds, mm -hmm. there is no set clear procedure for bringing this type of case forward. And there's a number of different procedural tools that a judge can use to throw out a case without even considering the merits. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why it was so disappointing, because in no matter what the circumstances are, they can either say, well, you know, you can't prove you can't prove standing or, you know, latches or this or that. They can always come up with a reason not to hear it and, and not to evaluate the case on the merits. It's. Yes, I mean it's there's a little bit disappointing with you know what they did with the other with the other arguments, but as far as the polling place location, that's the one that it's the most difficult for the court to throw that out outright because there are statutory obligations for the division of elections. They can't just do whatever they want. They're supposed to follow laws that are written by the legislature that define exactly how this this moving the polling place process is conducted, and they did not follow any of those guidelines. Yeah, it didn't look particularly strong for them when they were in court under, um, you know, under the questioning last week. It didn't didn't look real good for them. But um, we understand that the judge will come up with some sort of a an order tomorrow. Um, that would be uh, Tuesday. And so we're, we're waiting to hear how she will rule on that. But in the meantime, there were other things that she just wouldn't take up on these procedural grounds. And I want to go over them with you as well. Um, for instance, there was there was pe there were people who were voting in the district who, who apparently don't live in the district, and apparently there were enough of them doing that that it it was significant, and they all voted absentees, and probably most most of those were Democrat votes, so it would have been for Liz Snyder instead of Lance Pruitt. 
what was you did some research on this walk us through that yeah so you know after the election um you know we we took a look at things well i took a look at things and there was some really suspicious activity when you look at the way that the absentee program was conducted so basically this year there was 99.63% of the absentee ballots that were cast by mail were accepted that's never happened before not in alaska not anywhere that i looked at and there's reasons there's reasons why there's security measures in place and those things are screened because there are a decent number of the ballots that are not legally cast so as you know I, when i saw that number and I realized like there's no signature verification on these. They removed this, they removed the witness signature requirement. Like what is going on here? We had an unprecedented number of ballots that were cast this way. And this is the first time in ever that they've all been accepted almost, you know, virtually none of them were thrown out for any other reason than postmark date. And, you know, it's typically in this district, um, you know, even, even the lax, security measures that we had before they would be throwing out between three and four percent so what i did was i took a look at a small sample of homes um about 170 houses that had been sold within like a 10-month time period leading up to the election and i looked at the the property tax records and i saw if the owner changed i checked to see if they had voted in the district and so out of that 170 homes, I ended up coming up with about three dozen different people that had moved. Um, in some cases, back in January, people moved out of Alaska, sold their home. They put their follow-up address on their deed, which is a notarized document. It's basically an affidavit. It's a signed notarized legal document that is a matter of public record saying that they moved out of Alaska and that they sold their home in Alaska and they moved to another state and then they voted in October by mail using that out of state address. Oh. Like this is this is somebody that and this this happened in a number of different cases. They sell their home, move out of Alaska, they've got no interest in Alaska anymore. They've been living out of state since you know January, February time frame in some cases and these are just the ones that I looked at. I I could have went further back and I probably I probably would have found the same thing. Um, so, so Jay, Jim, let me just summarize this for the folks that are listening, because I think that um, that this is super important. So, just imagine if you're listening, just imagine yourself that if there's a if you're a single mom or a single dad, you come home from work, you feed your kids, you put all your kids in your minivan, and you head to the polling station, and that polling station has changed, and you have no idea. You're probably just going to head home. And that's a that's a big deal. And ten, then to Jay's second point is that there's literally people that live in Texas or wherever because they sold the property and moved out of Alaska and they voted in this election. And 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 you have proof of that. And, and, and the judge would not take the case. Why would they not take this case? So and, and I want to be a little bit clear on something. So this isn't just specifically about this one judge. There have been a number of cases recently where consistently judges are unwilling to consider any sort of enforcement of because there are the, the laws are already on the books they're unwilling to consider any arguments about about the residency or the legality of these votes uh and you know for whatever reason they don't want to do it 
But because they have that attitude, the laws are so loose in Alaska. I don't recommend anybody do this, obviously, because this, it is technically illegal. But any person anywhere in the United States could just submit an application to the Division of Elections citing any residents as their residents, and then they can they can vote there. And nobody, there's no challenging it. It's just, if you put that up on the application, that's what it is. If I wanted to vote in Fairbanks and I don't do this, I vote legally, but I could just send them a, a, a registration form saying that I live in, you know, just any random address in Fairbanks. And then they would have that ballot cast at that location, even if I, even if I had it mailed to my real home address in, in Anchorage. So, and so, it's not just an abstract concept. There's a lot of people that are doing this. Well, yeah. And in fact, um, our producer, Scott Levesque, wrote about this very situation with one of the staffers for Liz Snyder. She was um, one of their campaigns, her campaign staffer, who um, used to live in the district. And I don't know if you're familiar with this particular case. Maybe she's one of the people that you're familiar with. I think her name is Emily. And she was even receiving paychecks out of the district in her new location, um, but she actually, and she actually voted in District 27 as though she still lived there, which technically is illegal. And uh, we wrote, we certainly wrote about this, um, the, you know, Scott did a great job back in November writing about this because it was, it happened even before the election. You've got people outside the district voting in it. And here's proof. Yeah, and, and so, and that was like, there's, two of the particular ones struck me as being really over the top. That was one of them. So, you know, she's paid campaign staff for Liz Snyder, um, voted illegally in that election. And we can say that she voted illegally. And I'm not even gonna bother with the alleged thing because she noted, she notes it on the APOC filings. Like they even put her real address on the APOC filings. And, you know, and that's something that I'm hoping that we get a, a chance to argue that point in, in January, because, you know, to be honest, no matter which side won or lost in this case, it's going to the Supreme Court as long sure. as they agree to hear it. Sure. But that's something that that sort of activity is strikingly similar to the the things that Gabrielle Ledoux, for example, is being criminally charged with. Like if I was on her legal team, I'd be taking a close look at, at how the lawyers are or how the judges are responding to, to Lance Pruitt's case. Because if they can go and say that it's totally fine for Liz Snyder to do the same thing that Gabrielle Ledoux is being criminally charged with, it kind of makes me wonder if Gabrielle Ledoux is getting equal treatment under the law. Okay, that's a really good point. And, um, and, and the one thing that separates that out is that um, there, is, there are text messages from Gabrielle Ledoux pressing people, pressing individuals to vote in the district, even if they didn't seem to live there. Even, the, in, even if they said they didn't live there, she still texted them and said, we, we need you to vote. And so um, that was a, more of a activist role that she had as opposed to being you know, passively, maybe she knew, maybe she didn't know. Um, and so we don't know what Liz Snyder knew or when she knew it, but it is obvious that you've got detailed well, I would, records. I would, say, I would say that's correct, except she, Liz Snyder is the person that filled out and filed the APOC reports that say clearly that she does know that that wow. person who's voting for her does not live in her district because she's paying her money and right. she's sending that check to I think it's I think it's House District 22 
is the address that she moved to. So like she's she's fully aware that this person voted for her, that she lives outside the district. It's her paid campaign staffer, and she noted it on legal documents that she filed with the state of Alaska. Yeah, and I think and I think it's actual worker. It lives in District 19, if I'm not mistaken. So this is really a, a fascinating piece that wasn't accepted by this particular judge, Josie Garden, um, because on some sort of technical procedural grounds, which you you gotta wonder what what that is, because she she's she hasn't actually said why she wouldn't take. She hasn't actually come up with a reason why she you know she will write her her filing on that later, I guess. Yeah, and so something that's really important to mention too, um, you know, even if she does, even if we did argue that on the merits, nobody is saying that anybody should be disenfranchised and shouldn't be allowed to vote. However, if somebody sells their home in January and moves to California and then votes in October in the Alaskan election at a minimum, it shouldn't be a full count ballot. It should be maybe statewide. Like they mm -hmm. shouldn't be voting in local elections for local seats that they have no interest in and they don't have no, like, no legal interest or personal interest. They've, they've, they don't have any stake in these local elections. That should be a statewide ballot. And that's actually how, you know, the, the people who are honest on their registrations, that's how their ballot is treated that way. So we're really so just asking for the law as written to be enforced as written. And so you talked to actual voters who said that they had, that they didn't want to vote that ballot, but it's the one that was sent to them. So they voted it and um, that they knew that it, they lived in a different district, but they went ahead and voted anyway. And you've actually talked to people who have done this. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of inconsistency there. And there's some people too, like, um, you know, there's always confusion. When you look at the people who cast Q ballots, like on election day, mm -hmm. you hear some really interesting feedback too. And some of those things I wanted to talk about when we got around to um, talking about the election info hack. Yeah, there's, well, I'll, I'll tell you, yeah, if we can talk about that now. Yeah, let let's, let's jump into that. So so the, if our listeners don't know about this, you're going to have to fill them in on exactly what happened. Not that you would know because the FBI probably is the only one who knows, but there was a major hack of our election system and data was was uh, was scraped from our, all the data from our voters was scraped by a foreign government of some sort. Tell us about that. Yeah, so with that case, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there around what happened with this hack. And unfortunately, a lot of that misinformation is coming directly from the state of Alaska. When you look at the letter that they were sending people, it had a bunch of lines on there saying that there's no way that the information could have been used in any way in the election and it had no impact on the results and all these other um, statements of fact that they have no way of verifying, no way of knowing and no way of proving. Because the bottom line is the, the confidential private information for 113,000 voters was stolen between the period of September 19th and October 17th. Wow. They didn't even tell state legislators who are the, the final constitutional authority on elections. They didn't even tell them until it printed in the paper. Like legis state legislators found out reading the news in the morning. Like wow. nobody was nobody was told of this or notified. And then when people were initially notified, they weren't told that it began in September 19th. So when you look at the significance of the data that was stolen, um, a hack on this magnitude, there's no way that you can affirmatively state who did it because the people who have the technology to pull off an operation like this have the technology to conceal who did it and why. It was a state 
it was a for, it was a foreign government almost certainly and the information that they stole you're talking driver's license numbers social security numbers the type of information i have a hard time believing that um you know say for example russia or iran would be stealing people's driver's license numbers so that they can you know open up fraudulent loans in their and credit cards in their name I don't know what their motivation would be, but what I do know is all of the information that they required is exactly the information that you need to request uh, ballots by mail or email. And that is the only security measure that I'm aware of that's still in place because all of the other ones have been removed over the years. And what so I also know, bit, well, go ahead. It's a little kind of horse before the cart for them to send a letter then saying that you know, nothing happened with the information and, you know, we can verify that when they really can't verify any of that with the, cause they have no idea what these people did with the information. There's to my knowledge, the FBI haven't, hasn't put out any report of what the, uh, these folks did with that information. And the timing of it is, is a little peculiar that the, that the, uh, hack was a week apart from the ballots, the deadline for the ballots, October 17th and October 24th. You know, what could a person do with that type of information if they had it? Well, they actually they actually initially got their hands on that, that information a full month before the deadline. So um, if the, if the Alaskan state government finally found a way to prove a negative, I would love to hear, you know, their scientific process, how they solved that uh, that paradox that nobody uh, heretofore has in human history discovered how you can prove a negative that they can affirmatively state that this did not happen with no evidence to back that up. It's really, it's really amazing, um, you know, that they, that they managed to pull that off. But, you know, getting back on track, so they have that information. Nobody knows what was done with it. And they, the state, when we were doing requests for, you know, discovery requests, they were unwilling to answer any of our questions about, you know, who was affected um, in reference to, you know, what were, what were the names of people who were affected that cast absentee ballots? So I had, I had no way of contacting those people to check and see whether or not they did vote. And the state flat out told us that nobody double voted, which is false. There's always people that double vote. And, you know, without that information, I, we can't know for sure what exactly happened or if it's possible to see who was affected or not. I can say, though, that out of the roughly 4,000 uh, absentee vote by mail ballots that were cast in this specific house race, 15% or around 600 of them were people that had never voted in the past 10 years. Wow. So wow. that's it's entirely possible that those people voted legitimately. I'm sure most or all of them did. I have no way of verifying though whether or not they did. And theoretically, it would be very easy for somebody like me who's working for a foreign government, who has access to all of this information to figure out who those people are and then cast a ballot in their name without them ever even knowing what happened. Right, right, right. Well, from what our team knows, we have um, uh, 87 in our in that district that, that double voted. So we'll, we'll have to check into that a little bit more and, and find out, you know, who. Who, who that was, 87 at minimum, evidently. So um, yeah, so people do double vote. We, we've seen that in, in other places. We certainly saw that up in Shungnak in, um, in 2016. And so, so essentially what we've got here now is, is we've got uh, 
two days before the election, a, an important polling place gets moved. And we know that on election day, most of the voters that turned out were Republican voters on election day because the Democrats had been told by their leaders and by their propaganda arm to vote absentee or you know vote by mail. They were told to stay away from, they, they were told this, stay away from the polls, it's not safe to vote. Vote by absentee. So they, the big chase was on for their ballots and they had outside people coming into the state scraping those ballots from um, throughout the neighborhoods, especially the low hanging fruit neighborhoods. And this is a very blue district, quite honestly, but um, you know, fascinating to me, uh, I think Trump lost this district by like 600 votes. Uh, Dan Sullivan lost this district by like 500 votes. If I'm not mistaken, Don Young also lost. But Lance Pruitt, being a Republican, is really well liked in that district. He only lost by 11 votes. And yeah, so but Lance Pruitt outperformed every other uh, Republican on the ballot by a lot. Ex exactly. He um, really outperformed. So a couple point. the the points to look at when we're when we start talking about this polling place location being an issue. Like first off, the the point of our argument was the state did not follow legal statutory obligations, and as a result, the turnout was suppressed in that mm -hmm. precinct, and that caused injury to Lance Pruitt. And really, this is not about Lance Pruitt. This is about the voters that live there, right. the people that live there were disenfranchised by the action. And, you know, this is a little bit more in my opinion land, but the, the, the will of the voters was unclear because yeah. of the actions of the division, the state division of elections. They did not follow their statutory guidelines. So they had two basic arguments on their side. And the first one, they were saying, well, it's all because of coronavirus. And mm -hmm. the reason, in my opinion, that that doesn't hold water is because they had other precinct locations around the state, of, around the city of Anchorage and one in this district. And you know, the, the one in this district, Stuckigan Heights, they had the exact same issue, the, the exact same change in location issue in the exact same time period. And they did that one, they handled that one completely differently. They sent they out handled it well. cards. They, they yeah. sent out the updated cards notifying people in the mail. People were notified. They didn't have the same problems. And right. they didn't, they never really, they never offered an explanation of why that one was handled so dramatically different. And they didn't offer any kind of chat logs indicating like what those discussions were like and, and how or why that happened. And the other argument the state had, um, you know, that it was, it was almost unbelievable, but they started to actually offer arguments indicating that, well, people had opportunities to vote by mail. They should have just done it that way. And at one point we had a witness that came in that was an actual disenfranchised voter that she budgeted about an hour of her time to vote in the morning on election day. And then she was getting the run around from, you know, she showed up to a location, there's a sign in the door, she shows up to the next one and she wasn't able to vote because of that. And the state's lawyer actually started to ask her questions like, you know, well, why, does, why didn't you just give yourself more time? Like it was her fault that she didn't get to vote. And, yeah. you know, the Lotsfeld's crew, like Matt Buxton is on Twitter, for example, um, making those arguments, the classic, well, if you didn't want it, why was your skirt so short kind of argument? <laughs> exactly right. And, uh, and very it's, yeah, so it's, it's kind of crazy. They were actually, they were actually blaming the voters. And the thing that's so interesting about that is because the election day voters were overwhelmingly conservative, two to one, 
the state's own arguments were prejudiced against election day or election day voters. Yeah. And they were prejudiced against those conservative voters because they were conservative. So like the this the argument from the state itself demonstrated that there was injury through their actions to Lance Pruitt and to his voters. Yeah. So, so this is, this is fascinating. You've got, we've got at least two things, which is three things, really. We've got, um, we've got a a moved, uh, they they moved the polling location to a place that had had never been before. And so uh, those who had not budgeted enough time were chasing around looking for where they were supposed to go. And some of them may not have, and I understand that there was undervote by 57. 57 doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're in a race that you've only won by 11 votes, that's a lot. The second thing is uh, we have people out of the district voting inside the district, and you have a pretty good list, you said, of, of several dozen of those that you know. And you know this because you have a background in real estate and you know how to, to research deeds and deed transfers, correct? Yeah, and so the first off, the reason why it's so, so significant is because um, the group of people that were treated very harshly were two to one Republican and the, the group of people that were treated very leniently and the rules yeah. were not applied to were two to one in favor of the Democrats. The people that were voting those absentee by mail ballots, it was it was about 65 percent Democrat in favor of. And the, and, and, their, and the signatures were, you know, they, there were no signatures and they were accepted at ninety nine point six three percent of them were just simply accepted. Yeah, so people, when I talk to normal people on the street, they have this idea in their mind that it's a very secure process. Mm -hmm. The only form, if you're listening to this and you take one thing away, learn this, okay? The only form of security on the absentee by mail uh, voting process is the application itself. There is no signature verification. And say, for example, if I live in a house with any number of other people, I can just go through their wallets, take their driver's license number, send the application in, and if, it, if it's returned back to the Division of Elections with any mark in the signature box and the postmark is on or before Election Day, they're counting it, period. Like and, there's, yeah. there's no other security measure. There's no signature verification is conducted. Right. And so basically all of those, uh, those, ballot, those ballot applications that you see in the garbage cans at the, at the post office or in an apartment building garbage can that is right next to the mail drop, um, people can scrape those up apply for the, the, the ballots. They can also vote them if, as long as there's a mark there. This is also true in, when somebody votes with an online, like the online system, you just have to simply uh, send in your, your request for a ballot on November 2nd, you'll get your ballot back. And as long as you've printed it out and, uh, and mailed it back in, you have to postmark it, mail it back in by the 3rd. It, you can you can have a number of them sent to your address. It's yeah. Um, so if, if you all. if you have um and, and it, it gets a little bit fuzzy because I don't want to confuse this with it's it's really confusing. Like vote by mail and absentee mm-hmm. by mail are very sure, different sure. processes, and they sound very similar. But right. when you're talking the absentee by mail that is done in our in our state elections in the fall, not the muni ones, mm-hmm. anyone who has access to if you have your access to somebody's driver's license number or their last four or their voter number, um, which those are all considered confidential and, you know, they're not readily available through through normal means to the public. But if you have access to any one of those things, you can cast a ballot in somebody else's name and it would never, there's no way of knowing that that, that, that happened. 
because there's no signature verification. But um, to get a little bit back on track to your original question, though, when it was when I was looking at those 170 transactions, um, you can anybody can see the same information that I saw. You can see that the home was sold on Zillow. You can see through the property tax records that are publicly available that the occupant that had been there for years changed when the when the deal when the home was sold. And then you also can go on the DNR website and you can pull up the deed that was filed with the recorder's office where it clearly states like I so-and-so and moving to this address and turning over this property to these other people. It says that mm -hmm. on the deed, it's notarized, it's a legal document. They're, mm -hmm. they're surrendering their interest in that property and moving to another place. And a lot mm -hmm. of these, they give follow-up addresses out of state even. And then when they voted in October, months down the line, the ballot was sent to, surprise, surprise, that out-of-state address. Mm -hmm. And then they, they voted full count in our local elections. And, yeah. and the judges are completely unwilling to look at this, even though this is something that very clearly is not in line with our state laws and our state statutes. I guess they want the legislature to come back and make it even more specifically around, you know, this, I'm not sure what they want to be honest. I guess there, there's some, in some way they want legislative action on this, but no. there was one, one other case, like we talked about um, Liz Snyder's employee, her campaign staff mm -hmm. that voted that way. Uh, I wanted to mention too, that another one that really struck me as interesting was, you know, there was a, a former state politician, Betty Davis, oh, yeah. uh, they're talking about renaming a local high school in her honor. Yeah, they, they renamed East High School in you know the Betty Davis East High School. Yeah, you know, sad to say uh, she died earlier in the year mm -hmm. and her home was sold in an estate sale over the summer. Mm -hmm. And one of her descendants voted from that address in this November, November election. And it's somebody who lives in Indiana Mm -hmm. And who had the ballot sent to Indiana. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so crazy to me that this, this person who, who, I don't know if she, I don't know if she ever lived at that property or not, but it was sold in an estate sale. Like the owner of that home was deceased. And this, the person that voted from that address doesn't even live in Alaska. They live out of state. Be really interesting to see if she also votes in, in that state as well. I, I I did take a look at that and I've got no indication that they did. And so I, I do want to say like all these people have a right to vote. It's a matter though of how their of how their vote is counted. Like mm. I can't say that they don't have an interest in the state of Alaska that they're not residents, but I can say that they're not local residents. If anything, it should be a statewide count only. And for people who are honest on their registration, who do update it in time, that is how those people are voting. If you're honest, you're, you don't get the same treatment as if you're, as if you're, you know, slow or, you know, or, di or, or dishonest in some cases where they just, um, you know, they're working on the campaign or they're extremely invested in the campaign. Maybe they are personal friends and um, they just find a way to vote in that district. And that are, you know, things are just maybe wired a little too loosely. We have a, a, a no excuse uh, state well, you're, you know, you're able to vote in, in any way you want. You can vote in person, absentee, absentee by mail. You can vote, um, you know, 
by online and so in personal representative ballot, the P ballots. So we have a, a number of ways that people can vote legally, but what we're finding is that people are so eager to, uh, to, to influence elections that some of them may be voting illegally intentionally. Now you're not the one who's saying that, I am. Yeah, and you know, on that note, a lot of people right now are very interested in, you know, a lot of people are very concerned about the integrity in our elections and security in our elections. And I will say from my experience, from as being somebody who personally has been down at division elections while they're handling the ballots, while they're deciding which ones to count and how to count them. And also, you know, in this race, uh, you know, people were concerned about the machines, but all of the races, all of the 9,000 plus ballots that were cast in Lance Pruitt's race were taken out by hand and looked at by humans and, and verified in that recount. It was a hand recount and it was done with our observers there. And it was found to be done fairly well with a high degree of integrity. What I will say, the way that I've seen uh, election fraud happen, the, it's not like a planned or coordinated or conspiratorial thing for the most part. What you see is over many years, many different politicians and bureaucrats and people behind the scenes, the division of elections, they just slowly remove all of the security measures one by one. Everything just kind of becomes very soft and squishy. And eventually there, you just wake up one day and there's almost no security left at all. And then just organically, there's all of these irregularities that happen and yeah. they cause issues in our elections that make it so it's unclear, you know, what the voter intent was and, and whether or not a win is legitimate. It's, it's a matter of, you know, a lot of people, like a lot of my left-winger friends, they might say like, well, you can't prove that voter fraud happened. Like as if there's some, you know, mustachioed villain with a mask on in the back room with a box of ballots, like I'm stealing the election. It doesn't happen that way. You remove every security measure and just organically one person here, one person there, like 200 people there just decide that they're gonna request a ballot on behalf of their son who's in college out of state or they're gonna vote this ballot that their disabled grandmother um, who has Alzheimer's is entitled to that she doesn't wanna vote. You know, it's just all of a, a bunch of mm -hmm. individuals are able to exploit the system on their own. It's completely untraceable. And it's just something that happens organically out in the ether because all of the security measures have been reduced and removed. Mm -hmm. And because we have people like, you know, groups like the ACLU just uh, suing at every turn to try to remove those security measures and saying that we're somehow robbing people the right to vote just because we ask them to show ID. So John, do you have any thoughts about this as well? Cause you've been quiet. Yeah, I just wanna, you know, thanks so much, Jay. I love your insight, great research. And I do just want to say to our listeners, there is still hope. There is still power of the people. And I want to give a prime example of this here on the Kenai. The Kenai Peninsula Borough Assembly thought that they knew best and they were going to move to, to all mail-in ballot elections. And despite overwhelmingly uh, critical response from all the testimony that said, please do not do this, they passed it. And myself and some others led by Nor Assemblymember Norm Blankley basically said, hold my beer. And it took us about 15 minutes to get 1500 signatures to say, we're going to put this on the ballot because we don't think moving to all mail, mail in ballot elections on the Kenai Peninsula borough is a, the right thing to do. And even though the assembly always thinks that they're smarter than everybody else, we said, eh, we want this on the ballot and we got it shot down. So uh, it, it, our 
our measure passed by a 70% margin. And so we did not move to all mail-in ballots on the Kenai Peninsula Borough because people stood up for what they thought was right. So if you're listening to this, I wanna encourage you that you can stand up. You can call the division election. You can do public information requests. You can uh, phone your legislator to ask how you can help uh, shore up to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Sitting and doing nothing will accomplish nothing, but getting off your seat like Jay has to do something about this will actually do something about this. So yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And and Jay, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. You have been a fascinating guest. I am um, I learned so much today that I didn't know about these these changes in in D twenty District twenty seven. And um, you've really enlightened us a lot. I just, uh, we're gonna have you back on in a, in a few weeks to explain to us sort of where things are at and give us an update on it. And, and, um, and thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Very good. And John, before we go, uh, did, you, did you give away some, some of those, um, those books last week? I wanted to hear all about how that, that contest was. We were giving away the, the copies of Triggered and they were like, Signed copies or something, right? Yes, left privilege by uh, Donald Trump Jr. Jr. Oh, yeah, a yeah. signed copy. So, uh, a gentleman named Aaron. He just wanted to give his first name. What yeah. ended up winning? So he was very excited. He emailed me today and he said, "Listen, I basically have never won any of these things. He's done, you know, he's done these not only with us but probably throughout his life on Facebook or whatever. And this is the first time he's ever won something. So he's very, very, very excited. Uh, we're going to be sending him a signed copy of." Left Privilege by Donald Trump Jr. And we'll send him some uh, Must Read Alaska swag as well. So he's pretty pretty excited guy. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing your next promotion because like we're going to do this again. That was a lot of fun. Hey, and by the way, I love working with you. I love working with you, Scott, as well. If you're a supporter of Must Read Alaska, thank you so much. Thanks for listening today and for making it possible for us to stand up for the right side of the news and against the blue wave of the liberal activist media. Until next week, we're signing off from somewhere in Alaska, maybe on Wednesday, right here on Western Alaska.